0: Happy New Year.
1: This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with the salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of over $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Adventures in Angular link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco. AngularBootcamp.com This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. This episode is sponsored by Telerik, the makers of Kendo UI. Kendo UI integrates seamlessly with both AngularJS 1.x and 2.0. It provides everything you need to integrate with AngularJS out-of-the-box, bindings, component configuration, directives, template directives, form validation event handlers, and much more. And yet, Kendo UI tooling does not depend on AngularJS, so if you want to use it with Angular or not, that's totally up to you. You can check it out at kendoui.com. Hey,
2: everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 75 of Adventures in Angular. We have on our panel today, John Papa. Hey, everybody. Lucas Rubelke. Hey, everybody. And I'm Joe Eames. I'll be your host. And our special guest today is Dylan Johnson.
3: Hey, everybody, from sunny Tampa, Florida.
2: Ooh, Tampa, Florida. That does sound Lucky nice. Easy. It's been like yeah. eight degrees here, so anything warmer than freezing sounds balmy.
3: Yeah, sometimes
2: it's nice for a little chill, though. <laughs> yeah, not, a, not an eight-degree chill, but yes. <laughs> yeah. So, Dylan, do you want to kind of give us a little bit of an introduction? Our topic today is pragmatic programming and to do with Angular, right? We kind of – it's a nebulous topic. The name of the episode is, what, Pragmatic ES6, but we're not going to be just limiting our conversation to ES6. But I think before we really get into the topic, we, I'm sure everybody wants to know about you, who you are, your background, and all that sort of stuff.
3: Sure. So my name is Dylan Johnson. I work at a company called Raymond James Financial in the architecture department where I do a lot of UI development and DevOps stuff, kind of a jack-of-all-trades and get to wear a lot of hats, which is really exciting, but uh, do a lot of Angular work and a lot of UI work. And this topic kind of stems from, you know, there's a, quite a bit of stuff going on in the JavaScript world now with Angular 2 and TypeScript, and then there was AppScript for a while, and you hear people talking about Rx and Falcor and Relay. And what I found is a lot of the developers that I know that are just getting into UI development and Angular development are saying, wait, I just learned Angular 1. How do I get involved in Angular 2 and TypeScript? So that's what I'm hoping to touch
4: on a little bit. And if I could just jump in here, I met Dylan maybe, I don't know, two months ago or so. I'm also working with Raymond James and helping with their Angular project, and we had an opportunity to hang out over the course of a couple of days while it was visiting, and uh, we had just some really, really good conversations about Angular, kind of the state of, of JavaScript as it's going to this brave new world, and you know, kind of some of these theoretical things that are you know, coming down the pipeline that are really new and exciting. But at the same time when you work in, you know, a company that's grounded in reality, how do you actually like frame those things in a way that you know people can embrace and actually use? And you know, that's where kind of this topic of being pragmatic, pragmatic, future minded, you know, Angular is like how do we take these things and you know present them in a way that, you know, angular developers or, or even new developers can wrap their minds around and, and see the value of, you know, not only from new developers to, you know, even see business owners, you know, within projects, and so um, really, really good conversations. And so, I kind of was the one that was pushing Chuck to, to bring Dylan in to share some of those ideas.
3: Yeah, I think that uh, definitely augments uh, kind of where I'm trying to go with this conversation. And a lot of the framing for this conversation comes from a book called The Pragmatic Programmer. It's a book that I, I recommend to a lot of people that I work with and that I know. I guess a little bit more background on myself. I'm a self-taught programmer. Been at this for about five years. Um, And for the first year and a half or so, I kind of just, I was taking contracts, I was Googling, I was reading Stack Overflow, and nothing really was crystallizing for me until I started exploring some books like Pragmatic Programmer, which I apply principles from uh, still today. And in this environment where, you know, there's so much going on with the JavaScript world, I found a lot of its principles uh, especially applicable.
5: So I'm reading through Pragmatic Principles here, and some of the things, like it says, you're always learning something new, whether it's a language, a technique, or a tool. People who, who are pragmatic generally enjoy change as well. Can you kind of just define what pragmatic means to you as far as a pragmatic programmer goes?
3: Sure. So the really interesting thing about that book when compared to some of the other books and papers that I found really helpful is that it's not framed around like a specific language or a specific framework or even necessarily like a specific topic like the Gang of Four book about design patterns or the Domain Driven Design book. It's more about just thought processes and approaches to problems and characteristics that somebody who can be a productive programmer uh, really takes to heart and tries to you know execute on a day-to-day basis. And how
5: did this help you kind of relate into learning things like Angular? Because you said you were kind of going down this road of, reading about this stuff, and how did the, how did applying these principles help you?
3: Sure. I came to Angular after a background in, in PHP and Rails development. Oh, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> let's, Just let's teasing because Charles isn't here. <laughs> and PHP, of course, is the butt of all the, the programming jokes. But I actually had a, a pretty uh, interesting experience with PHP development. There's a framework called Symfony in PHP that's uh, somewhat analogous to Angular. So they were introducing concepts from well-established frameworks like Spring. And slowly but surely, those concepts kind of got adopted into the the native PHP language. And they were some really advanced topics, you know, like dependency injection and factory pattern and some of the stuff that shows up in Angular 1. So when I got to Angular development, I had gone through that process with Rails and, and with Symfony of kind of being an an amateur and just jumping in and and running some generators on the command line and then slowly but surely really figuring out what these concepts were. So then showing up into Angular, the pragmatic side of things was really helpful because when you look at at some of the ideas that Angular has has adopted from these well-established backend frameworks, things like dependency injection or the module.factory method, they're not necessarily perfect analogies to what you see In frameworks like Spring or or Symfony. So had to exercise some of those pragmatic principles to say, just because this is called something that I've heard before doesn't necessarily mean it applies in the same way, especially when we're talking about a JavaScript framework, a single-threaded environment, and a, a framework that's used to develop something completely different than a back-end application.
4: So what are some of the uh, pragmatic principles that you kind of use to guide this journey that you take as you wrap your mind around something new?
3: There are a few pragmatic principles that show up in early on in the book and talk about just some general traits that you're going to have to have as a, a professional developer that's that's also effective. One of the big things is you're always learning. When I got into development from a completely different career track, I figured that you know I could spend three to five months learning how to develop. And then I would have it all figured out. And about three to five months in, I I found that that was not necessarily the case. You always have to be learning. And that really kind of struck a chord with me that this isn't something that uh, is unique to an amateur developer. If you want to be an effective developer, especially in something as fast paced and as quickly changing as, as JavaScript and UI development, you have to want to learn, you have to seek out new information, new languages, new techniques. And then another principle that that kind of piggybacks on is is you have to enjoy change and be willing to adapt the way you work to uh, adopt some of those new languages and tools.
2: I loved the Pragmatic Programmer book and I thought it was an excellent read. It's actually been so long, like you were saying things that, like, wow, I can barely even remember that stuff. But I love their, their stuff and this idea is, I love the advice that's generic. Right. Things that we can learn from all disciplines that apply to all of us as developers, not just JavaScript developers or
4: Ruby developers. Like one thing I, I love that you said is, you know, always learning, you know, language tools, techniques, and methods is that I think to be a really effective, you know, programmer in, in any language, it's really important to go and, and look at other languages, other frameworks. And you know, so I think right now, you know, reactive, you know, functional programming is is a really kind of a big deal right now. And I've been reading a book that is called Reactive Messaging Patterns with the ACTOR Model. It's in Scala and in Akka, but it's really interesting how, you know, they talk about, you know, kind of these reactive messaging models, which that is actually built on top of the Enterprise Integration Patterns book that's been around for a long, long time. But a lot of these concepts that are like brand new and cutting edge in the JavaScript realm have actually been around for like a long time. Mm-hmm. And we're just finally discovering, like, oh, like, you know, here's these enterprise integration patterns, and we can actually use these, and this will help us do front-end web applications even better. And, you know, even like Redux, which is super amazing, that's really just a couple patterns combined together to, you know, do something really useful in a web application, but it's not really, like, a new idea per se, but taking sure. those ideas and bringing them into JavaScript or in Angular, in our case, is, is incredibly powerful and a way to just, you know, progress the things that you're building and doing.
3: Yeah, and I, I think that really applies. I mean, one of the core things that's not necessarily Angular-specific but has been kind of floating around in the JavaScript world with different Im- implementations for a while one of the most important things for me as a developer is, is modules. You know, it, it's second nature when you're, you're talking about developing Java or C-sharp to think about things in, in packages and modules and think about the, the boundaries between your system. But one of the kind of blessings and curses of being a UI developer is you get the instant gratification of, of seeing your work on a screen and you're refreshing the browser or you're reloading your, your iOS emulator and you're seeing your changes take shape, so you're not necessarily thinking at a high level all the time. Another piece of reading material that I, I recommend to a lot of people that, that I talk to is a paper called Why Functional Programming Matters, and it's, I think, from like 84 or 83, but in the introduction, something that really, that really struck me is it's now generally accepted that modular design is the key to successful programming dot, 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 and then there's a bunch of citations of old languages I've never heard of. But that simple idea that, you know, when you're thinking about developing your your system and your your application in a modular way, it's composable. You can take these things and piece them together. You know, we saw the Angular 1 module system with with its warts, but moving in the right direction, and then things like Browserify, Jspm, Webpack, and now uh, SystemJS. You know, rambling a little bit here, riffing on what you, you were saying, Lucas, but all these things have been around for a while, and it's really exciting and interesting to see them kind of come up in a JavaScript context.
4: So tell me what, I'm looking at this list here, stone soup. Like, elaborate on that a little bit and kind of what that means. I think it's fair
3: to say that, you know,
4: all this stuff is pretty green field, and it's
3: really interesting to see ES6, the first uh, significant, Language update in a while, and especially ES6 adopting some failed features of of ES4, like classes. Stone soup is this, uh, I don't think it it originated from the pragmatic programming book. I think it's more of just like a fable of some people that took a stone to a fire. They were traveling, and they said they could make some soup out of a stone. They put the stone into the, the pot as the water was boiling. Um, and then they said, you know, you know what would make this soup great is a couple onions. And then they turned to somebody else and said, you know what would make this soup great is, you know, a couple potatoes. And on and on and on until they've made a, a great soup that they're sharing with everybody. The light that this is uh, colored in, in in Pragmatic Programmer is the Linux world. Talking about Linus Torvald sitting down and, and writing a kind of Unixy kernel and saying, you know what, it would be great if I had a, a shell. And it would be great if I had a text editor. And then you're bringing all these ideas together and all these uh, powerful contributors and kind of piecing together a a really powerful tool with the best ideas from from a community and making something out of nothing. And I think that's really analogous to the opportunity that pragmatic programmers have in the kind of current JavaScript world with build a development tool, build a, a new Angular 2 module. The opportunity is out there to really take the green field that's been provided by the Angular team and and extend uh, what they're making.
2: So I love that. I want to back up slightly uh, and talk about the fact that one of the pragmatic principles that you've talked about or listed is that pragmatic programmers, I think is kind of the way to say this, they enjoy change. <laughs> so I think that this is certainly one of those topics that could really end up in a quite a heated debate. I don't know if you guys have seen recently, there's been a bunch of churn on the Internet, uh, uproar on the Internet over what's been labeled JavaScript fatigue or tooling fatigue, which is some people complaining, why is it so dang hard to set up a JavaScript app today, much harder than it was two years ago? Yeah, that's this whole they enjoy change.
3: That's an interesting point. You know, it, the, the other thing that you commonly hear from back-end developers when they're kind of poking fun at, at you as a UI developer is, what's the new noun.js? You know, I, go put in some noun.js and you're going to find something on, on the Internet. The way that I would counter that is, one, there's been an undeniable shift in the the computing power that, that people have on at their fingertips. Web browsers are, are way more powerful than they used to be. And it's caused people to to think about problems a lot differently. It's not all, as evidenced by Angular and React and all the other uh, single-page frameworks out there, it's not all server-client, server-client. You can put real business logic into a user interface. You can do real complex uh, operations on the client side and and leverage the the power of the device that people have at their fingertips. So it may may be a little bit rambling way of of addressing what, what you asked, but... I think JavaScript is just in in such a rapid iteration phase that you will always see change occur much more rapidly in UI development than any backend technology for all the reasons I listed. And then because JavaScript has a strict backwards compatibility restriction, you know, you can't go change JavaScript because you're going to break old websites. So all these new language features that people want to embrace have to be added on top of of what already exists. So that's going to create some sort of, you know, there's going to be friction in building a JavaScript application when you have to compress business logic that formerly uh, lived on the server, but you can't change what's underneath the hood.
0: To give the people their due who are objecting, you know, they Look, we're learning things all the time, but we don't learn everything all, all the time. And we're trying to pick our bets um, because we have to, And there's some suspicion that the latest thing is just the latest thing to be different. Mm. And can anybody articulate why I should go learn X when I know Y? And that the people who are big fans of X are often not really um, good at articulating why X is better than Y. They just reach for things like, well, it's more performant or it's more efficient or it's lower yeah, you know, low, I mean you know they'll throw these sort of the, the judgments that, that are you know those are great to come to those conclusions after you've reasoned from some place from starting point but they just leap right to it or look at how cool this is and nifty this is and um, that's really for me what's underlying some of the some of the resistance I mean everybody you ask anybody they all think that change they have to cope with change they're not a. I mean they, everybody's says that while well, being simultaneously afraid of change and so forth. But, but really, you know, I, I think we understand that we need change. But we're not just out there to be jerked around. And we all know people whose favorite idea of what the programming life is is to learn the new toy.
2: Well, yeah. And there's not just a matter of, hey, I already know something. Why do I need to do something new? But also the thought of what if I'm worried that before I even learn this new thing, the next new thing will only be out and replace it. And there's some really good analogies of that recently in the JavaScript world. Bower started getting pretty really popular. People started learning it, and all of a sudden, we all got the memo that don't use Bower anymore. NPM is what's being used. Oh, uh, that's such a that's such a great point. Both ah, of the things that ah, the, yeah, it's both true. of the things
3: that you just said are, are such great points, Joe. Um, the fact that you bring up Browserify, I'm going to be completely honest. There are things about the differences between AMD and CommonJS and Browserify and require JSPM Webpack. That I, I don't really understand the nuances between all of them. So there, I think maybe this this should have a modifier. They enjoy change. Should have a modifier in the JavaScript world where we enjoy sensible change. <laughs> or we enjoy tidal changes rather than uh, small, you know, shiny objects that indicate to us that we should move in a different direction. But I I I think what's what's not debatable is uh, module system. A module system of some sort is necessary. And hopefully by the time that I'm really digging into to building some production apps with, with a, a module system, the playing field would, will have figured out who the winner is. <laughs> so we're not asking the question about which, which one we need to use anymore.
2: Right. That's a great point. You know, I came from a Microsoft world before I got into front-end development several years ago. And I remember what it was like. As a Microsoft developer, when a new product came around, it had been a few years, and you were really excited, right? I don't remember. I I certainly haven't been involved really at all on Microsoft for five years. But before that time, every time something new came out, a new version of the language, we were excited because it had been a long time. I can see how people, especially in the JavaScript world, are getting frustrated with the pace of change, how many new tools that came out. Like, I just barely learned Babel 5, and then Babel 6 came out. And it wasn't, you know, a 100% change. And then the idea, of course, that sometimes change is just change for change's sake. But if change leads to something that is more painful, even if it brings more benefits, if it's more painful, that could be hard. So this idea of they enjoy change, you're right. It kind of needs an asterisk. Next
3: yeah. Slide. Yeah. And I think it's partially because what we uh, I mentioned earlier about the client has a lot more capabilities now. So you're seeing the shape of large applications change. I think it's also just uh, part and parcel of of JavaScript as a language. It lends itself to metaprogramming. The language features that we've seen introduced have been born out of things like CoffeeScript, where people were changing the way the language looked, or people writing polyfills that essentially uh, started the language feature development. So I think a, a much more rapid pace of change in the JavaScript world for, for a lot of factors, but I totally agree with both your point, Ward and your point, Joe, that, you know, not, you don't just change for change, the changes sake, there's gotta be a good reason to do so.
0: So Dylan, have you had a, a shot at talking about what your thoughts are on TypeScript and its goals and its effects on the way we program?
3: Did someone I know, like uh tell you to ask me that, that question?
2: Cause, uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a trap. No, I didn't. I did I No, it's a completely innocent question. I arrived late, and I I don't know whether you covered it or not.
3: <laughs> so uh, I I just say that because uh, a lot of my my colleagues and friends and I have conversations about TypeScript, and I've I've actually been fed that question while speaking before because of some of my opinions about TypeScript. There are huge benefits to any typing system in the JavaScript world whether it be Flow, whether it be TypeScript, or whether it be native ES6 uh, introducing something like Classes. What is compelling to me is making sure that that doesn't erase what JavaScript is and the unique aspects of something like a browser environment that kind of change the way that, that your programs have to work. So I know Lucas and I have talked quite a bit about um, you know functional programming style, and I've seen a lot of applications where, that's not just like a religious battle to say things like pure functions. Um, if you start introducing a lot of stateful aspects to a pretty complex Angular application, you're going to end up with really difficult to fix bugs. You're going to end up with really difficult to address performance problems. So some of the principles of JavaScript itself, I don't want to see those get lost in TypeScript. But that being said, you know, looking at the IntelliSense that you get in an IDE looking at some of the language features that if you're, you're a JavaScript-only guy um, or gal and you uh, see a generic for the first time, you've never written Java or C Sharp, and exploring what that offers you in terms of type insurance but also flexibility, all of those things are really encouraging and I, I think are language features that people can leverage in strong ways just so long as they don't go creating uh, you know, messy inheritance trees, base being anti-pattern, I think that the TypeScript will be a real a real benefit to the JavaScript world.
0: Yeah, uh, people who listen to this podcast know that I kind of always use this opportunity to deride classes, which I think are, which I generally dislike. <laughs> One thing, though, I have noticed, because I was really fearful that TypeScript, the movement to TypeScript would lead to a lot of inheritance, deep inheritance, that old bugaboo, I have to say I haven't been seeing that much of that. It's really been gratifying that almost all the uh, I hardly see any class that inherits from anything, and most of the work I've seen people been doing, and they're very shallow inheritance trees if they are there. So, so classes seem not to be being used or abused in the way they used to.
5: And that's always been my biggest issue too with the with the classes was that it's not that it's a class I had a problem with. It's the overuse of multi-level object inheritance. Uh, although I do I do see it occasionally in TypeScript. I've seen it a couple of times. But the thing I've seen very pervasive in TypeScript with classes is the use of implementing interfaces. And I see that all over the place. And I think if I lead to an assumption on it, the reason I think I see it a lot is people like the tooling that comes from the interface. And the side effect is when you do an interface, there's zero code generated from it. So you're not actually generating any JavaScript. You're just getting yourself tooling and uh, design time, development time experience.
3: Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to jump Pretty far ahead in in some of the stuff that uh, I was hoping to to bring into this conversation, but I was talking to to some of my colleagues and and friends who are developers that are big TypeScript fans, and I've been very hesitant to adopt TypeScript. I've been waiting for the day that uh, ES6 or even ES5 gets equal treatment in in the Angular 2 documentation that that TypeScript does, and what they brought up that you, you just can't deny from a pragmatic perspective is when you're in your IDE and you're about to invoke a method and you get that suggestion about you know what what you're supposed to pass to this method or the comfort that you get from knowing that something's about to compile your code and it's going to look at everything you just did and tell you if you really messed up you can't really argue with that so i definitely think that's that's a big benefit to typescript
0: well, and I'm, I'm hopeful that it will – that, it, you know, it seems to be continuing to evolve. In particular, you know, it's still a little hard to do mix-ins, which is one of the really great strengths of JavaScript and other languages like it. And I'm looking forward to seeing better support for that. And I wish – Or can you
5: explain what you mean by mix-in just because there's a lot of connotations?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the mix-in idea is that I have stuff from a bunch of different classes, implementation stuff uh... from a bunch of different classes and i want to create a new class that has characteristics of all of them and with single inheritance i can only allow to inherit from one base class which means i can't if i follow the inheritance model i can't pick up on the capabilities of multiple classes each of which is dedicated in its implementation to doing something well that my sort of facade class or whatever the heck it is you know could benefit from And in pure JavaScript, that's pretty easy to do. You just sort of pull in prototype stuff from other objects. I don't hesitate to call them functions or or classes. But you you pull things in, capabilities in, from this sort of cafeteria of of things that would be helpful. And it's not... all that obvious in TypeScript how I build a class and fold in capabilities from other classes. It, all the interface tells you is that it's going to implement it. It doesn't actually give you the implementation. What you really want in a mix in is to have the capabilities of the other classes merged in with your with the class you're trying to build. That's, that's,
3: uh, such, a, that's such a great point and it is so easy with a, a super simple ES5 or, or, or previous iterations of ECMAScript to do things like that. If the language lends itself so well to to metaprogramming and implementing patterns that you need just because the language is, is so flexible. And that's been part of my concern as well, to be honest with you, that either people lose the understanding of kind of prototypical inheritance or first class functions, higher order functions, because they see that classes are available to them, or that that aspect of JavaScript where innovation is, is coming from people, metaprogramming just kind of disappears from the community. But I read something pretty interesting that Reginald Braithwaite published on, on his blog the other day that showing how you can actually leverage some of the new ES6 features with some of these metaprogramming patterns and using classes as mix-ins because classes, just like functions, can be treated as expressions in JavaScript. So you can define a class and then mix it into another class. And he actually speaks to exactly what you're looking for there, Ward, the multiple inheritance that you might be able to get by traversing the prototype chain in regular ES5 or previous, but leveraging some, some syntactic sugar from, from class expressions to make that happen. I never would have figured it out on my own. But he, he he was able to to use some of these new language features to, to make that happen.
5: Well, I think that's the key there is you, when you're doing a lot of JavaScript, ES5, uh, it doesn't have a year on that one, does it? <laughs> ES uh, 1900. So when we're doing that and we're trying to do basic JavaScript, you've got a lot of flexibility. The same flexibility you get from that is what a lot of uh, classic JavaScript developers love. But... When you go to TypeScript or ES6, even you're you're kind of you're kind of stepping aside and saying, "Hey, I'll take this uh, this newer style uh, over that flexibility and functionality." Uh, there's a really cool story that I had just this last week where I was helping a developer who was new to TypeScript lambdas, basically the fat arrows that you can get in TypeScript ES6, etc., or even like in C sharp. And this developer was trying to figure out why this one function wasn't working. And long story short, it's because the this keyword. You know, that this context was changing and they didn't understand what the lambda was doing. But the real nugget in here is that this person hadn't really understood the TypeScript syntax and didn't really know how to debug it. And when I showed that person how to debug through the browser, not look at the TypeScript, but look at the JavaScript that it generated, it was instantly obvious to them of why they had the problem. Because they saw that, oh, this isn't being captured. And the nugget out of there is that it's when you're doing TypeScript or ES6. Always go back and look at the JavaScript it generates when you're really trying to debug stuff, because sometimes you'll find out what it's actually doing is not what you intended. And it's perfectly okay in some cases to revert and say, you know what? I don't need the CS6 or TypeScript feature. I can just get it done pragmatically with doing a basic uh, good old function in ES5.
3: That's so important, right? To understand that when you say, I'm going to run this thing through Babel or Tracer or whatever the next noun.compiler.js turns out to be, um, that underneath the hood, you're, you're going to compile JavaScript with its same old uh, primitive values available to it, with its same old function expressions available to it. And, and all this new stuff that you're getting is really just building upon what, what's already there. Uh, both from the aspect of being able to, to look at what's been generated and understand what's going on. And like you said, and, and this speaks to another one of the, the principles from the, the pragmatic book is use tracer bullets, get up and running as soon as possible uh, with a small piece of functionality. And while you're doing that, make sure that you can put a breakpoint somewhere and you can figure out what's going on when you encounter a problem Rather than you know building a a, a huge application and, and not being able to dig in when you encounter unexpected
0: behavior, I think I mentioned it once earlier, but I have I, at some point months ago I turned off debugging in the browser that, that uses the source map, and so I'm always debugging into the transpiled code, the JavaScript, oh, and no. I I've forgotten to turn it back on because it's so easy for me. To mentally jump back and forth from the JavaScript I've got to the TypeScript, that I I have that satisfaction of of seeing what's really being executed as opposed to what what I wrote. So we really uh, I'm should not do saying a show. Do that, but
2: no, no but
5: I think we really should do a show on debugging in general. Yeah, I think that's a lost art. Just like that funny site. Let me Google that for you.
0: <laughs> you know,
5: how many times do you get a question where somebody says, "Hey, how did you figure this out?" And you like know, you set a breakpoint, you go and you walk through it. And it's easy for you, I'm saying for you, meaning anybody, when you've done it already. Once you've learned how to debug and you know how to do it, it's like two seconds you've done it. But when you don't know how to debug, I think that's, uh, that's a learning curve that we all had to go through. So I think it's really important to learn how to debug, not just JavaScript, but when you're doing transpilation like TypeScript to ES6 or you know, ES7, when that comes for us too, you need to know how to debug in these different environments.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a pretty large barrier to entry.
2: So how do we apply these things uh, to TypeScript and Angular 2?
3: So the big thing that I've had success communicating to people from Pragmatic Programmer in the past is a, a pretty funny idea called rubber duck debugging. And it sounds silly, and every time I tell somebody, hey, Now go you're get, just making
5: stuff up on us, aren't you? No, this,
3: this, is a real, <laughs> this is a real thing. And it's worked for me in the past. So. I know that I, as a developer, and I think a lot of other people can relate, I've gotten into situations where I'm so deep in a problem space that I, I'm you know, editing a couple characters and, and refreshing the browser or letting gulp reload my, my application and just uh, kind of trying things until maybe I get the result that I expect. Rubber duck debugging encourages you to step away from the desk, pick up the rubber duck that you apparently have on your desk, like all pragmatic programmers, and talk the duck through the problem. Because it doesn't necessarily even need to be another developer, even another person. It's the thought process of, here's where I'm starting, here's what I'm executing. And that drives the problem that you're encountering out a lot better than just trying to make some small changes and and see if... uh, the program works at that point. So I do that
5: all the time. I, I can't tell you how many times I grab somebody, ask them how to do a problem. I walk them through it. They never say a word and I figure out the answer. And it's one of those things where you just need to talk it through and somehow you can't do it in your own head. You know.
3: I've also had the exact opposite experience too when I do talk to people. So funny story, really great developer that I've worked with in the past. We encountered a really nasty issue with like time zone translation and stuff was being stored in a database as a datetime object the java backend was converting it to the local time the data center was in a different part of the country Um, So the JavaScript engine that we were checking it on was localizing the time on the front end, and that the data center was in the same city for some people. So only some people were seeing like a six-hour difference in the time that they expected to be reflected on the screen. And uh, this guy and I are talking about the the problem, and I said, "I, I don't know how to say it any differently to you. And he says, I don't know how to say it any differently to you. Um, and ultimately, we stepped away for a few minutes and, and stepped through the problem and, and figured out what it was. So it's a really powerful tool. And to relate that to Angular, um, I think some of the changes in, in Angular 2 uh, really encourage kind of what uh, I'm trying to coin as a term, rubber duck design. So when you built JavaScript applications before my career started, it was all about, like, you click something and something else on the screen moves. Or, you know, when jQuery introduce the AJAX API, you're going to make a server call, and then you're going to have like nine callbacks underneath. And all you're looking for is one keystroke or one click that results in the the expected output. You're not thinking about, you know, a a domain model or the single responsibility principle or all these good design patterns that you might see in back-end systems. I think the architectural aspects that you guys covered uh, in the previous episode modules and components and all the other stuff that's core to Angular 2 really encourages developers to think about UI applications and, and do some sort of rubber duck design. Before I just slap an element on the page, let me think what component this goes in, or before I just write a bunch of JavaScript, let me see if this is, this is a new module or if I can refactor a little bit. That's a whole lot of thinking, and I don't like to think a lot when I code <laughs> well well the great thing is the duck does the thinking you just oh. talk to it and it gives you the idea
5: cool so my duck is usually named ward what's your <laughs> duck named uh duck <laughs> i don't get it Quack. <laughs> no I, I totally get it it's one of those processes i think you should all go through and it's it's so i might come from a family of uh, construction engineers uh, background a bunch of uh, italians got off the boat Landed in New York and decided to build some things. And we have a couple of sayings that we did in uh, New York. And the only one I can actually repeat here would be the one where we talk about you measuring when you're building a house. You're building some kind of framing. And you always want to measure twice before you cut. Because once you cut, you're done. And a lot of times you don't take the time to think through what you're going to do or measure it twice. You know, you could cut it and then you've got a problem. So uh, always want to measure twice, cut once.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. I think it it makes you think about things like design like that or or exactly where you're placing mechanics and also thinking about how components talk to each other, what the the publicly exposed API between components is. And again, drawing back to some of those uh, pragmatic principles like the the law of Demeter is something that shows up in Pragmatic Programmer, which is just a fancy made-up term to say that components should only know about what they need and they should have limited capability to talk to other components. And when you start thinking about stuff that way, when you're building an Angular 2 app and, and components are core to the design, you eliminate problems with, you know, shared state and, and mutability um, and maintainability and, and really start to design, um, you know, solid, robust applications.
0: So, Dylan, what are you telling people they should do in terms of testing? In general, test
3: Definitely test. <laughs> I uh, To be completely honest, I haven't gotten through the testing chapter of the Angular 2 documentation, and I know from listening to, to previous episodes, Ward, um, that you're a real big proponent of testing. But I have seen a lot of questions come up when you know people start writing Angular 1 apps in, in ES6, and they immediately kind of shut down when they get to the phase of how they're supposed to write tests because it completely changes how... Can I even run tests for ES6 code? How do I import these things that I previously was using the phantom injector for for Angular 1 to to use and create stubs for? But the big thing that that I've seen is beneficial for for people making that leap is to say, you know, go, go take one controller or go take one service, install Babel, turn your constructor function for your controller into a class, and then try to run your unit tests for that new class-like controller. And when people see that, you know, you, you can use ES6 when you're writing your, your Jasmine tests, um, but you don't have to, I think it becomes a, a lot easier to, to wrap your head around. And the, the same pragmatic principles really, really hold true. Design to test, if you encounter a bug, write a test before you write any more code and don't let this change and kind of what what your code looks like prevents you from abiding by the same principles that, that have been successful for you in the past.
0: Yeah, I just wish I saw more blog posts and t- demos and descriptions of either Angular 1 or Angular 2 that included tests. And, and I could just as easily point that, you know, look in the mirror on that, too, because I've been doing so much stuff and I don't have much showing tests on any of it. You know, so I, it's just one of those things I feel like we we talk about, but we don't do enough we haven't made it easy. We haven't made it easy for people to do it yet. So it's a frontier for me.
3: Yeah, I agree. I, I wish there was more information uh, out there about it. And I was just kind of trying to dodge your question a little bit because uh, <laughs> what I do for <laughs> testing is the same exact stuff that I've done for testing with Angular 1 and ES5. But um, I'm still you know, getting the code coverage metrics. And, and again, being, being sensible about what you're doing, before you go introduce a whole bunch of lines of code, uh, make sure you can test it. And I hope there's some some cool stuff on the the frontier for the Angular 2 world where the
0: the test tools improve a little bit. They better improve a lot, but they will.
3: <laughs> so if there's
5: any one tip that you could kind of leave our our listeners with, as far as uh, how Pragmatic Programming can help them getting up to speed or how they should apply that to Angular 2, where would you kind of lead them? So that's a big question.
3: <laughs> the The book is a great place to start, or the the Pragmatic Programmer website. It's uh, not the friendliest UI. Um, but I think Dave Thomas put it together, um, who was involved in, in writing the book, jump in and, and get an idea of some of these principles and then uh, immediately start thinking about how you can uh, apply them in in your daily life or, or even just one in, in your daily workflow. So, for instance, the principle, use tracer bullets. And what that means is, you know, get something to, to production as fast as possible so you can start uncovering uh, the problems that you don't know exist, I'd say go do that with Angular 2, with TypeScript, with Rx, with Relay, Falcor, all the various things that people are throwing a- around is the, the new big thing. Go to GitHub, look at the documentation, and, and just try to get started with those things, not necessarily all together, just one by one, and, and arm yourself with the knowledge so that you can uh, decide to use them when when it makes sense.
0: Nice. So what's your New Year's resolution then, Dylan? What's the big frontier?
3: Another big question. The New Year's resolution is to take some of these things. The uh, So so stone soup is something that a lot of my, my friends and colleagues uh, talk about, both as a benefit is, and as something that, that I do quite often. So uh, big ideas, big things that could be really beneficial, and then just kind of uh, create the design and let somebody else implement. But some of those things I'd really like to see crystallized in, in the next year or so. I know a few episodes ago, I think Chuck picked Dan Abramov's React Hotloader and time-traveling debugger is something that, that people should watch, even though it's it's React, it's not Angular. I'd really like to help materialize some development tools like that around Angular 2 and you know take the opportunity, this, this kind of new landscape, to jump in and build some tools to help people be uh, productive on a daily basis, if that's a real answer.
0: Seems real enough to me. I don't know if you had a chance to talk, Dylan, about how you're approaching Angular 2 given its sort of nebulous sort of emergent state. Uh, there's, you know, and, and you you know, it's turn beta so that can kind of change your relationship to it and stuff like that. But if, if you had some words of advice for the people that you see regularly, uh, how would you recommend that they approach it?
3: The Angular 2 journey has been pretty interesting, right? So at Angular Europe, 2014, I guess it was, there was the apocalyptic outrage at uh, the introduction of some of the Angular 2 APIs where, you know, they said dollar $scope was dead and all the ng-attributes hyphen were going away. And every Angular developer said, you know, why did I just spend two years finally figuring out all this stuff? And now you're going to tell me you're, you're, you're changing everything. And that's especially concerning if, um, you know, you happen to find yourself in a a situation where, you know, I know in past episodes you guys have talked about, like, enterprise developments. These are things that you have deadlines for. They're they're not hypothetical things. Um, so drawing the balance between seeing when Angular 2 is going to hit beta, figuring out if you're going to use Angular 2 or Angular 1 for your new application that you're just starting development on, um, all of those things have been pretty tough decisions. But I think <clears throat> what what is held true for me, throughout that entire process and seeing kind of the furor die down in, in terms of the changes in Angular 2 and, and the realization, again, drawing back to, to pragmatic principles, that they were fixing broken windows. They were looking at the flaws in the framework and, and making it nicer for people to, to develop in for these, these enterprise production applications. Uh, The thing that's held most true for me is to stay involved in reading those conversations and try to get involved in having those conversations with the people close to framework development and looking at the documentation as it comes out so that when you get to the point that Angular 2 is in beta, they're saying they're not going to break any APIs and it's it's fit for you to kind of jump in and convince your boss to say, yeah, we're ready to go to Angular 2. You have that security of knowing where the decisions came from. And what the journey was to decide what these APIs were and prepare yourself, learn what the framework is about, what problems it solves, and, and how it's advantageous for you as an app developer.
5: I kind of think, too, it's interesting if you think about the reverse of what's happened. Let's say Angular 2 didn't exist. Let's say the Angular team never announced anything and we're still on Angular 1 and that's all it was going to be and we're trudging towards Angular 1, 1.5, 1, 1.6, 1, 1.7, etc. If that was the case today... Would we be happy with this rhetorical question? I guess would it be be happy with the state of angular one dot x given where the the rest of the JavaScript world is heading towards with some of these newer frameworks?
3: Oh, I mean you look at i know unidirectional data flow is kind of like a buzzword and and the question is always yeah that's fancy but but what does that do for me when you look at some of the concepts like that from react and the emphasis that React places on pure functions. And again, going back to that Dan Abramov talk where he illustrates the importance of pure functions and being able to step through your programs. I think it's clear that some of those influences have, have made their way into the Angular framework. And I know that I personally, if I, if I was just you know picking for my own amusement, if I was still sitting in the, the Angular 1.3 world and then looking at what React had to offer, that would be a, a very tough decision, and, and Angular 2 definitely addresses a, a lot of those issues. So maybe maybe to be more specific, like you look at the Angular.io uh, developer guide documentation in the component section, when you start looking at, at lifecycle hooks and the kind of uh, APIs that are being exposed to uh, an Angular developer in Angular 2, a lot of them are very close to, to React APIs, should component update? set state, things of that nature that people found convenient in React and provide a lot of advantages to uh, developing a UI application. A lot of those things weren't present in Angular 1, and they kind of changed the shape of your application and changed how you think about developing your app.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's actually not a bad example because I think about the controllers that we wrote in Angular 1 and how we wanted to have... We wanted stuff to happen, but we didn't want it to happen in the constructor, and there was no way to really do that, and yet having things happen in the constructor leads to trouble. Just little things like that can help you get unstuck. So uh, I think we all, uh, those of us who have spent enough time with it, are starting to feel like Angular 2 isn't just different. It's uh, feeling a lot better, feeling like the right choice.
3: Yeah, and if you wanted to get access to a lot of that stuff in Angular 1, at least in in my experience, where you would find that is digging into, you know, the NG model directive and looking at all the the state updates that happen when when you type a keystroke into a text input. The lifecycle hooks of, of values, as they propagated from the view to the model and back to the view again, weren't as easily accessible. You only found them when you were talking about edge cases, and they weren't really at the component level, they were really at the, the value level. Um, and I think that that's something that was uh, kind of a, a shift in, in my thinking, at least, when I saw React and, and the way the components were structured and, and all these lifecycle hooks that, that components had, that I'm really glad to, to see uh, coming to Angular because it, it uh, allows me to gain the same advantages of, of some of these functional programming styles and lifecycle-driven choices in component development that we didn't have in, in Angular 1.
0: Just to be fair, by the way, a lot of those notions were in other frameworks. For example, they were in Durandal, probably were in Ember. I don't know Ember well enough. So uh, it's good that everybody has gone shopping to look at some of the other <laughs> frameworks and pick up the ideas that are available in all of them.
3: I think they were in uh,
0: WordPress, too, if <laughs> I remember correctly. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
3: lifecycle hooks are not a
5: new
0: They're not new, <laughs> uh, but they sure were missing. Um, sure word, we, we Yes. <laughs> yeah, that and, and uh, asynchrony, a proper uh, driving asynchronous options throughout the framework is something that was really missing in Angular 1, and I think we have um, a lot more of that available to us in Angular 2. Right. And I guess some of these things you think maybe are just all theoretical and stuff like that until you face really hard questions um, of what am I going to do when you're trying to deal with, you know, an interaction with a user that's part of your regular programming process. Like, what do I do with all these changes that the user has made and, and now I'm going to go away? What am I, you know, what am I supposed to do? Uh, how am I supposed to shut this component down when they leave? Those aren't esoteric questions. Those are questions that you confront as soon as you get away from, from the to-do app. Sure.
3: And, and even the hidden lifecycle hooks, right? Like I know I've, I've seen app developers encounter issues where they're using some sort of event driven architecture in angular one and they're invoking scope.on, but they're not binding it to anything
4: mm-hmm. and
3: they're not invoking that on scope destroy because they haven't bound it. So now you're introducing a memory leak into your application. That's definitely, that's big... yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a life cycle hook that isn't explicitly exposed that uh, you get more explicitly exposed in Angular 2.
0: Right. And then you've got all these change hooks, too, that are really nice. So how do I know when the, the property changed or when some, when some, whole bunch of things happened um, that Angular was doing behind the scenes, uh, and now it's done doing what it's going to do? How do, I, how do I tap into the fact that they're done so I know what to do myself and, and harvest what they did? That, that stuff was really missing and it's there in Angular 2. So we're um, – yeah, it must be time to wrap up.
2: Yeah, let's um, let's wrap this up. I think this has been a really good discussion and certainly one of those topics that is very important for people to be looking at and thinking about whether you're switching to a new framework or you're not switching to a new framework. Pragmatic programming, I think that one of the things we could certainly recommend is the books. It's a great thing. So it's been a really good discussion. But let's move on to PICS. So, Ward, how about you?
0: Oh, you would do that. I would. <laughs> my pick is that I want to close out the year with more sleep. I, th- I think sleep is underrated. You start
2: now and not end. Uh, I'm going to sleep year.
0: right after this podcast, and I'm waking up in January. <laughs> That's more my pick. More sleep. Good pick. More sleep. Good pick. John, how about you?
5: My pick is to never sleep. Now. Yeah. So I've, I've got uh, two picks. One is pretty technical, and it's a great list. So there's a link I put in here to a list of essential node links, basically. And Sindri Sorhus, probably saying that name incorrectly, who's done quite a bit of the NPM modules that we all know and love, like Yeoman and Tutu MVC, has a great list of really useful node links for things like, you know, what if you want to manipulate dates, or what if you want to do string manipulation, what if you want something to do um, task automation? So he's kind of curated this list up there on GitHub, and it's a wonderful list. Uh, Got a lot of people looking at it already. And if you haven't seen it, you definitely should check it out. It's a great way to kind of zero in on how to solve some problems with Node. Uh, My second pick is uh, an Angular website, and it sells a product called Exploding Kittens. It's a game (laughs) uh, where basically you're playing a game about cats that explode. And it's really cool. It's actually, they claim to be one of the largest uh, Kickstarter successes in history uh, to produce this game. And I was just checking out the website where they sell this at uh, explodingkittens.com. And there's actually uh, Angular in the website itself. So definitely check it out. I was playing this game with my kids on Christmas night because they got it for Christmas. Santa brought it. And we were laughing uncontrollably all through the night at the kind of things you can do when the cats are exploding. Awesome, Lucas,
4: you're up. Yes, yeah, so my pick this week is, ironically, from Pragmatic Programmer's bookshelf, uh, Reactive Programming with RXJS by uh, Sergei Mansilla, I believe his name is, and I just have to say that RXJS is the heat. It is insane, and so just a little preview of what's in the book, he actually writes an entire game with no side effects, and that's pretty phenomenal, that all of the state is entirely dynamic in kind of these reactive streams throughout the game. So really, really a powerful way of of thinking about programming. Um, I'm kind of shifting my worldview on asynchronous programming as a result, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's phenomenal.
2: Hmm. Awesome. For my picks this week, I'm going to pick, I think this is kind of relevant, a talk. I actually picked this on another podcast, but it's called what we actually know about software development and why we believe it's true, which is sort of a talk about the fact that we, there are many things in software that we think are true. We believe are true mostly because of anecdotal evidence, but is simply something that we believe is true and under real scientific rigor and scrutiny may not be true and you mean
0: like a good program or is 10 times better than a not so good programmer? He discusses that one specifically.
2: And so it's a great talk. One of those talks that I think, you know, every developer should watch because there's so many things that we just sort of like go along with the lemming flow of well this must be true, you know, it must be the right thing or this must be better. This must be easier to maintain because everybody says it is. So it's just a great talk. And then my second pick is going to be the Star Wars movie, of course, but also specifically the soundtrack to the new Star Wars movie. Awesome programming music. If you're looking for some programming music, fantastic stuff to listen to while while coding. And no word, I did not put Joe up to listing Star Wars this week.
0: <laughs> I, I know you guys <laughs> just start constantly on me.
2: Well, you know, it may, I pro- it may be the best movie ever to have been on ever made. No, but, brother. you know, you don't have to agree. I, well, look, when, I'm, Ward, I'm sure, I'm sure to driving.
0: watch it before the yeah. end of the century.
2: <laughs> Ward, you are the Jar Jar of our show.
5: Oh, he's <laughs> brutal! Burn! <laughs> he's a secret Sith Lord.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, guys. All right. Well, just so that you know, Ward, I'm on my way to see it for the third time tonight.
0: I just can't believe you guys. I'm going to have to send you this image I've got. Uh, I'll put it on Yeah, It notes.
5: hasn't made that much money either out there, so it's not doing too well.
0: You uh, know, so, uh, if money were the measure of quality, uh, where would we be?
2: Jurassic Park would be the best movie ever made. Jurassic World, sorry. the best movie ever made. <laughs> World, be movie ever made. I, saw, I saw a blog post
3: the other day, things to look for the next few times you yep. go to see Star Wars. I was just okay. reading
2: that. <laughs> you know, just reading that today. I'm, I'm excited to check some of these things out, some of which I noticed already, but – Excited to check them out. Cool. All right, uh, Dylan, you're you're up. You're our last set of set of picks.
3: All right, so I think I have to pick the the pragmatic book and the the corresponding wiki, um, where you can find most of the material in the book. Just really been invaluable for me as progressing through a, a programming career. The other couple things are that Mozilla has a series called Mozilla ES6 in depth, which is really interesting if you want to start learning about some of these new language features and exploring how you can apply them in your workflow. And then something that I haven't really gotten totally through and, and plan to get through is uh, if you uh, look at gitbooks.io, there's a typescript book by, I don't even know the gentleman's name is handle is Bassarat, but we'll post it in the show notes. Um, I'm excited to look through the, the typescript deep dive and, and see what differentiates it from uh, all of the other cool
2: new stuff in the UI development world. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for being on the show, Dylan. We really appreciate the time uh, that you spent with us and the conversation, and thanks to all of our panel and all of our listeners. And we'll see you all next week.
1: Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to AdventuresInAngular.com slash forum and sign up today.